Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Yesterday's meeting saw councillors at City Hall approve increased surveillance to deter hate groups protesting on city property. Hamilton is going to be facing an estimated 6.7% tax hike in 2020. And a piece from the National Observer says that when Doug Ford pulled Ontario out of the international energy trading market, it killed 227 emission-reducing projects across the province. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Discussion, of course, at a General Issues Committee meeting yesterday at Hamilton City Hall, uh, which saw councillors actually approve what they call increased surveillance to try to deter hate groups from protesting on city property. Joining us to talk about this is Ward 1 Councillor Maureen Wilson. Uh, Councillor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Uh, you, you've been doing a lot of research into this, you and your fellow councillors, about this. Uh, are you comfortable with the direction that you're moving after the, the motion that was passed unanimously yesterday? Um, I, I think there is a sense, uh, and we've heard this from the community, a sense of urgency to ensure that we're doing all that we can uh, to um, ensure people using our public spaces are safe and they have the freedom to do that without being um, subjected to uh, slurs or um, violence or um, racial, uh, any matter of how you define violence, whether it be a racial slur, uh, anything that constitutes hate. And I know the council, uh, city council, has been taking this matter very seriously. Um, I'm taking this matter very seriously. There are, of course, some concerns that have been uh, sounded by the community on uh, matters related to surveillance. History shows us that the very groups that we're um, trying to protect, marginalized groups, are always uh, usually not served well by surveillance. So that is an outstanding concern of mine, and uh, we will be deliberating about it again on Friday at Council. And some of the the policies that are coming forward, uh, while the consultation process hasn't been defined, it will uh, they will be uh, put out for consultation both internally and externally. So I think that's really valuable. Right, and you're going to hear from all sides in this issue. And as a matter of fact, you did. I know one of the yellow vesters who actually appeared before the committee yesterday uh, and expressed some views uh, that uh, I, I know, I guess, rankled a few of the councillors from what I'm told. Uh, so this is this is the balance, I guess, you're going to have to try to attempt to find here, is it not, uh, between free speech and, and, you know, when is, because if we're advocating free speech, and I think most of us in this community do, uh, we're bound to hear stuff that we don't like and that we don't agree with. Uh, but, you know, where do you cross that line to say, okay, that's hurtful and that's hate-filled? Mm-hmm. Well, and the courts have been grappling with this. There is case law, and it always there's always a tension, and, and thankfully there, there is that tension because in too many places around the world they don't have the freedom to even have this debate. Um, they live in authoritarian regimes where uh, there is one person or uh, one regime that interprets and then rules without any consultation, without debate. So the responsibility is ours, and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that we have that opportunity. What about, uh, let's, let's talk about staffing, uh, because we noticed that there was yet another uh, display in front of City Hall last weekend. Uh, police were there in larger numbers than they usually were and actually set up barricades. Uh, is that going to be the new normal? Um, I think the new normal, regrettably, has um, changed across the globe. We're seeing um, 
seeing a rise of hate. We're seeing um, hate emboldened. As I've mentioned, it used to be that hate would have to wear um, a mask or a cloak, and now they wear suits, and they feel very emboldened to walk down uh, the streets of uh, the United States and other places with torches. Uh, it is uh, a concern of mine as an elected person. It is a concern of mine as a citizen, and it is certainly a concern of mine as a mother of three children who um, worries about where uh, the kind of place that my children are, are going to have to grow up in. I, I, think, I think most of us in this community share that concern. And, and the, 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 I guess the question a lot of us were asking that I have fielded on this program over the last couple of weeks since the incident at Gage Park uh, was how is council going to address this and, and try to find that balance? Uh, one of the things that you decided upon yesterday uh, was to hire a security investigator for a two-year term. Uh, what role will that person play? Well, my understanding is that role will be bringing their skills to bear. I know City Hall um, has already uh, surveillance measures in place. Some of them are not functioning at an optimal level. And that person is uh, going to be training um, and advising all of the city ha uh, hall operations on uh, the best m methods of, uh, of surveillance. And doing what with that information? Well, uh, that is something in which we ask questions about. So when you have surveillance, um, uh, who, uh, who has access to the data and, and the tapes? How long are they stored? Um, are they subject to, are they subject to freedom of information? Um, we were provided some answers and, and my request was uh, we need a protocol to set that out publicly so that we all understand um, the parameters with which that stuff is going to be held but, stored but there is there is a protocol in places they're not already because I know there was a debate some years ago about CCTV down in the downtown core, <clears throat> and a lot of the concerns that, that you've already referenced here, I think were mentioned then, uh, I would have thought that the council has already addressed that. So uh, is, is it, is it uh, to enhance that policy, or do you want to look at that again and bring that back as, as, as the basis for what you're doing now? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that um, more of the public have an interest um, in the security and safety, but also freedom to use public safe, uh, space, and as you said, that the inherent tension in that. So I think it's very appropriate for us to set out um, who will be doing and how will the surveillance be done and the parameters within which it will be secured and used. And I, I need that information clearly set out as an elected person, and I know I've been contacted by various members of the community asking those same questions. Uh, so that's yet to be determined then? Well, the answers that were provided for me yesterday is that there are parameters. I just want to see them set out, and I want that to be part of the consultation. As to who's going to have access to this, I would, I would imagine Hamilton Police Services, but I mean, who on city staff, and, and as you say, is it, is it going to be uh, accessible through creative information? The other element to this, too, is, is to what end is the information going to be used? Uh, I mean, I already had one email from one concerned citizen that says, are they going to compile a list of, uh, of people who are not allowed to be there because of uh, past activities or past actions or something of this nature? I mean, is there, a, is there an end game here, an end goal that, the, that they're looking at when you gather this data? Well, I think all of the um, all of the conversation around this is, are going into policies that will be coming forward, um, 
and uh, there will be consultation beginning in September. And the purpose of that consultation is to inform the kind of uh, uh, policies that we need to be put in place to ensure that no one is subjected to hate, not just uh, at the forecourt in front of City Hall, which arguably may be our most important place, uh, public space, but in all public spaces. So this is going to go th- essentially through all city properties then? In other words, it would, it would, would whether it's Gage Park, or, um, you know, Dave Anderchuk Arena, whatever the case might be, this is going to be a civic pr- protocol that's going to be in place? Yes. All right. Uh, now, obviously, uh, enforcement is going to be somewhat problematic in a situation like this. Uh, we saw that happen, obviously, at Gage Park, and I know you're still seeking answers about that uh, and some of the other incidents that have happened. Uh, how, how do you plan to enforce something like this? I know you're hiring one individual to do this, but do existing city staff and existing police services uh, suffice to, to, to make sure that this is going to be adhered to? Uh, part of the um, report yesterday spoke to the, ne- the necessity of training all members of city staff who work in those facilities, so that will be coming forward as well, it's my understanding. So that'll that'll have eyes on this, and they'll understand where the parameters are and who's abiding by it and who's not. Uh, let me ask you something else, if I could, and I don't know if it came up in the conversation yesterday, but maybe you could shed some light on this, Maureen. Um, who's allowed to actually have a, a, a demonstration and a protest? Uh, are permits required on, on city property, for instance, whether it's the forecourt at City Hall or Gage Park or Gore Park or anything else? Can they just gather there and show up with signs and, and placards and, and they're okay? Or is there a certain regulation and set of rules that they would adhere by, whether it's make application for or something like that? What is the protocol? There is an application process. Um, it's, um, I, I, don't, I can't recall what the acronym is for. It's a seat application. Um, so you, you do have to fill out an application form, and then that application is circulated to various departments, including, my understanding, the Hamilton Police Service. And those um, commenting agencies uh, do assess it and comment it. But my understanding is, if you, for example, if you wanted to use the forecourt, um, council has already ru- ruled in previous years that that is open to the public. The only uh, deviation from that is if, for example, um, you wanted to come in and uh, use City Hall, uh, the, the washrooms, etc., like that, that that triggers um, a requirement for staff to be on hand, um, and that changes that there is a permit for that process. And if, for example, you needed to use the auditory uh, um, equipment, uh, sound equipment, if you will, and the um, the um, uh, electrical system of City Hall. But if you want to, my understanding anyways, is if you want to go in front of City Hall in the forecourt and, uh, and um, have a demonstration, um, I was there last Saturday and I was there the Saturday before uh, with allies of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, you're free to do that. So the, just to so people have an understanding about what's going on, uh, I'm going to get back to the video stuff. I'm getting a lot of emails from some of our listeners as we're having this conversation, Maureen, uh, questioning why uh, these uh, cameras have to be upgraded. Are some of them non-functioning right now? That's My understanding is the, the terminology that was used yesterday is that uh, the quality of them is not sufficient for uh, the purpose of providing evidence. So <clears throat> these are going to be uh, enhanced models then? Yes. Um, yes, as, a, as it was explained to me, that there are cameras in place now at the front and in, uh, in the back 
uh, but the quality of uh, that equipment is um, not optimal. So there are tapes available now, uh, 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 theoretically, of some of the events that have already occurred in the forecourt? It's my understanding. And have those tapes been uh, shared with, for instance, Hamilton Police as they continue investigations? I don't know that uh, answer to that, Bill. I'm sorry. That's our, Well, we can check with the, the City Hall security and find out just what's going on with this. Uh, Maureen, you mentioned about public consultation on this. Who are you going to be reaching out to? Obviously, uh, we've heard an awful lot from the LGBTQ community over the last couple of weeks because of their concerns, uh, very legitimate concerns. But but are there other groups that you would you want to have uh, included in, in the dialogue that's going to be going on here? Um, the, um, the city manager did address that, uh, all the groups and the method of consultation has not been defined, but there was assurance given that the existing advisory committees of the city, so in this case, the LGBTQ advisory committee, um, uh, immigrant and refugee subcommittee, etc., uh, those groups will certainly be included in the consultation, and I would suspect any group uh, or individual who, who wanted to uh, engage in, in the consultation would be welcome to, and I would encourage it. You mentioned that uh, you were th- of the opinion that there were some groups who may have some some problem with the the, the video, uh, the taping of, of, of events that are going on there and the video surveillance that's going to be in place right there. Uh, who are those people? Obviously, they've already contacted you and expressed those concerns. Well, I think from uh, the perspective of civil liberties, there's always concern when there's surveillance involved. Um, I know the, um, uh, I I can't remember their formal name, it's a a McMaster uh, Librarians Association. Um, uh, They're they're expressing concern over surveillance. And um, I I know a concern of a few professors, uh, including... uh, a sociology professor at McMaster University is expressing concerns uh, about the parameters involved in surveillance. So, um, and I, I think those concerns are justified. I think history shows us that surveillance has not always been kind to the very groups that um, are, are marginalized in this community and across across the globe. Final question for you, if I could, Maureen. I appreciate you taking the time for us on this today. Uh, did any discussion occur yesterday during the meeting about uh, the, the concerns of the LGBTQ community and that communication? Uh, as we know, the mayor tried to set a meeting up. You've already had a meeting, of course, with the chief of police, uh, you and Councillor Nan. Uh, but there seems to be a reluctance uh, by a number of members of the LGBTQ community to actually engage with city council at this point. Uh, what, what, if anything, can council do to try to build that bridge again? Well, I, I think it. I think it begins by every single individual member um, listening to the concerns and learning about the life experiences of um, members uh, of that community, and they are varied. Um, I think it begins by doing, uh, beginning to do your your research. There's a, a needs assessment that was conducted. Um, uh, by McMaster University in partnership with over 700 members of the community. It sets out clearly some of the conditions within which they are living. Um, Fear is a dominant uh, factor in their lives. And just (laughs) when you're living a life where you're always having to be fearful, it necessarily restricts your liberties and your opportunities. Um, So the best thing that every member of council can do is lead with empathy 
accept the conditions within which, um, if members wish to speak with you, um, go to where they wish uh, and they feel most secure in speaking to you, and learn and listen. Ward 1 Councillor Maureen Wilson. Maureen, thanks as always for the time. Great talking with you today. Thank you very much for your time. We'll uh, stay in touch, obviously, as this rolls out with Council and the dialogue continues with the, uh, the community. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We mentioned the uh, General Issues Committee meeting yesterday at Hamilton City Hall. Uh, at that meeting, City Councilors got some bad news about uh, proposed budgets uh, for the coming year. Uh, we knew that there was going to be some concerns, obviously, because of some of the policies announced by the, uh, the Ford government in Queen's Park. Uh, but uh, they saw some numbers, the realization of some of those numbers yesterday. And boy, the challenges are monumental now for this council, and I guess just about every council across the province. Joining us to talk about this is Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, who was uh, there meeting yesterday. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, yesterday's bad news as far as the pressures that are going to be concerned. Uh, if you do nothing, spend no more money, uh, we're looking at about a 6.7% tax hike. Now, I know that, that your your goal, obviously, is to endeavor to, to lower that number, but, but that's a pretty rough starting point, isn't it? That, that's a huge number uh, to start from. Um, to put that in perspective, over the last 10 years, the city of Hamilton's average tax increase has been 1.9%, which is below inflation. So, you know, historically, we've done a really good job of keeping our budgets tight, um, keeping things on budget, and uh, to come in right now, halfway through the year, looking at a 6.7% tax increase, I mean, it's an enormous number, and some of the challenges that we've had in the past um, previously have meant job cuts for city employees. We've cut positions. We've had to cut services. We've cut investments in things like uh, roads and bridges and infrastructure, and uh, unfortunately, that's that's what we're looking at in 2020. It's 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 certainly going to be an austerity budget, unfortunately. And therein lies the problem, because everything you cut uh, is going to have an impact on something else, and there's a domino effect in play here, isn't there? Absolutely. And I, I think there can sometimes be an impression that um, that the city you know, might not be the best steward of taxpayers' money, but one of the things that I've been the most impressed with since I've been here is actually how tight our budgets are. They're extremely well-managed, and our our staff, our city staff, are very, very much budget conscious. So to just talk about, you know, cutting millions and millions of dollars from the city budget, it's not an easy task. It's it's an extremely challenging exercise. Well, and therein lies the frustration. And I know you're feeling that. I know when I was on council way back in the 90s, uh, we felt that certainly uh, because we got the same mantra from Queens Park: "Look, just find four percent savings, and you're going to be fine." Uh, that, that's a, that's a, an abstract number. You're the one that has to, as a councilor, you have to look at that and say that four percent means uh, maybe we're not going to cut the grass as much, maybe we're not going to shovel the snow as much in the winter time, maybe we're not going to plow those side streets uh, to the degree that we have in the past. That, I mean, that's going to have an impact on your residents. Absolutely, and. Uh and the magnitude of those service cuts, it's not something that we can just kind of shovel under the carpet. I and mean, residents are going to feel it this year. Um, and there, there's just no way around it. Um, you know, coming into the two, 2020 budget, we kind of knew that this was going to be a challenging budget year right off the bat. Um, we had some big infrastructure transit um, projects that were going West Harbor that were set to be funded in 2020. But on top of that, the provincial shortfall is just puts us in a 
an enormous hole right off the bat that, you know, before we even get started, we're already down between 2 and 3%. So it just seems like all the challenges just mounted on top of one another, and now we're, we're facing this what is a monumental task for our staff and for council to try and find and prioritize, uh, you know, what services are we going to have to do without? Um, what do we absolutely have to keep? What can we defer to the future? Because, uh, you know, things like road repair, um, we might not have it in the budget to be able to do those repairs in 2020. That might have to get pushed down the road. So, like you said, it's, it's a whole cascading effect in trying to balance our entire I mean, our entire citywide budget is $2.2 billion. We, we have a huge budget. But out of that, the city uh, council only has control of between 40 and 60% of the budget. The rest is mandated by the province. Um, for example, police, education comes out of your tax bill. So when we're talking about trying to affect you know, tax savings or tax increases, we're only talking about around half of the total budget. So that just compounds the challenges that we're facing. Well, and for everything that you, as you say, put down the road, uh, I mean, if it's roads, bridges, anything of that nature, I mean, that just means next year you're still going to have to deal with that issue, but it's a year older and it probably needs more work than it would have this year. Well, to be perfectly frank, it ends up costing us more money in the yeah, long run. Um, sure it does. When you, delay, when you delay repairs to your infrastructure, to your roads, um, water mains especially, uh, it, it just means that that cost compounds in the future, but... So that's the challenge that we're faced with is we have to balance what uh, what you know we transfer on to our residential taxpayers and we're we're extremely cognizant of, of people's ability to pay. Um, Hamilton right now traditionally has been a fairly high tax rate across you know across Canadian municipalities. We've we've whittled that down over the year. We've made really good progress on our uh, residential tax rates, I think anyway. Um, but you know we're we're still cognizant that there's you know, we we can't get uh, you know blood from a stone. We we can't expect our taxpayers just to absorb these kinds of increases. So we uh, we're really facing that 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 difficult challenge of of finding out what our priorities are, what can we keep, what do we have to defer. I got to ask you. You and I had a conversation about an issue that you brought up a couple of weeks ago, and I want to throw it back in on the table here. Uh, and and that's about council having to I, entertain the idea of of service cuts. And I know that's that's a terrible thing for councillors to do. Nobody likes to do that. But you talked about, for instance, biweekly garbage pickup, uh, and and I, it didn't really get a whole lot of support from your fellow councillors. But but just to put this in perspective, John Paul, it seems to me is that's the kind of thinking that the council is going to have to start to do here of simply saying how we how can we make this. Uh, efficient, but at the same time cost-effective, and it is going to mean some service cuts. And we, we have to entertain things like, like, uh, uh, well, the, the biweekly garbage. I know some municipalities, uh, for instance, don't do side streets when they they do snow clearing in the winter. I, you're going to get a huge pushback if you even entertained an idea like that. But that's that's really the kind of thing you're looking at doing here, isn't it? Well, I think we need to prioritize and. A number of years ago, the city and council did go through a very aggressive budget um, looking for efficiencies and cutting uh, services and jobs to reduce their tax rate. And we've we've kind of taken care of all the low-hanging fruit. There is nothing else that's easy in the budget that we could possibly um, just, you know, cut out tomorrow and nobody's going to notice. Things that we do now are going to have a direct impact on our residents. So bi-weekly landfill collection, not garbage, landfill, uh, is is one option, uh, and uh, just yesterday we uh, we passed a stormwater 
management program fee to re- to review uh, stormwater management fees instead of having that on the water bill, have that shifted to properties that have much bigger asphalt areas. And that's historically in the past, it hasn't been very popular with council, but that's another one of these kind of um, controversial items, we'll say, that might be something we have to go to because, I mean, realistically, it's either that or it goes to residential taxpayers. And I don't think that's a choice that any of us around the table want to make. Do you even entertain the idea of, of, of postponing some of the major projects? I mean, for instance, you talked about the, some of the, the, the waterfront projects, and I know that council was very excited. I think the community is pretty excited about that project. Uh, do, do you even put that on there? I, I guess this is all under the guise of, uh, are, are there any sacred cows? Are there any projects that you, the council is going to say, no, we've got to do this no matter what? Well, there's there's two really big budget drivers that we have control over as a city, and one of them is the waterfront, and the, another one is t- transit and our 10-year transit strategy. So on the waterfront, we did agree yesterday to shift some of our capital investments on the Pure 8 uh, project um, a little bit further into the future, recognizing that we still need to make those investments, but just the uh, the um, the direction that that project's going is allowing us to do that without affecting it too much. On the transit side, I mean, we're really stuck. Our 10-year transit strategy is wholly dependent on 50% federal funding and 30% provincial funding. And we haven't got the funding agreement from the province um, this year for our 2020 transit strategy. And the province is not sitting till October. So there's very small chance that we're going to get an agreement in place before this budget comes through. So right now we're looking at deferring the next year of our 10-year transit strategy because, not because we want to, but realistically we have no choice. And, and you know what the fallout from that's going to be is you're going to get a report back from staff saying, well, ridership's down again. It's because you're not able to enact the plan. I mean, everything everything is tied together here. Exactly. And it's, it's the domino effect. So we saw that in the past where we had to defer a year of our 10-year transit strategy, and that's exactly what happened. Staff came back with a report on you know the effectiveness of the strategy, and it was like, well, hey, guess what? Ridership's down. And uh, that was used as justification to not continue with the with the ten year strategy. So everything cascades from the the choices that we make on this budget, and it's it's like I said, it's an extremely difficult challenge because there there is no gravy train at City Hall. There's nothing that we can just you know go into the to the storeroom and find you know a few bags of cash that we can give back to taxpayers. Our our budgets are extremely tight and. It, 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 it's going to mean real impacts on our on our residents. We're looking at um, increasing user rates because we don't have a choice. Our, our um, service fees we're looking at increasing because we don't have a choice. And the average uh, tax increase, um, you know, it, it depends. That's that's based on a, a three hundred thousand dollar house. So if you live in uh, an area of the city where your house is maybe double or triple that, I mean, you're seeing double or triple that tax increase. So it's, it's a significant amount of money for, for residential taxpayers, and, and we have to be extremely cognizant of that and balance that, you know, if we're going to increase taxes versus what services are we going to lose. You're going to get some pressure. I, I know you know this is coming, but uh, from, from other affected groups here, 
uh, because of these provincial cuts. I mean, for instance, you talked about some of the mandated programs like uh, public health and, and things of this nature, uh, but there have been cuts, significant cuts by the province to some of those programs, uh, which means some of those programs are going to be eliminated, and we've already talked about some of those. The cancer screening bus is one and so many others. Uh, in the past, the city council has always had pressure from some of these groups to saying, look, it, you guys have to step up and fund this now. Uh, the answer is going to have to be no this year, clearly. Right, and uh, I think that's a really good intri- a really good point that Councillor Ferguson brought up, is that we can't just pass along these cuts to municipal taxpayers because the province is saying, hey, look, we uh, look at this great work we do, we cut our budget, but realistically they've just passed over $12 million worth of expenses onto the city of Hamilton. That's 1.3% of your total tax bill is uh, a provincial shortfall in one year. And it's effectively, it's not even 1.3% because, remember, we only have control over roughly half of our budget. So that's 2.6% worth of cuts that we have to make right off the bat because of the provincial funding shortfall. And that's things like neighborhood development, children's services, um, public health, Ontario Works, paramedic services, $2 million just in paramedic services. Um, long-term care, housing services. So th- these things are important to our community, and, and the amounts add up, and it's some of those are things that we can't do without. Um, you know, a, a number of the public health services, it's an investment in public health is, is you know, being an engineer, I always compare everything to roads and bridges, but it, it's the same as an investment in infrastructure, whereas if you put those investments off today, you end up just costing yourself more money down the road. So... Um, it's it's extremely tough, and it's you know we also have to consider that we're a we're a, a city that has some you know fundamental public health and uh, social issues with poverty and things like that. So just cutting twelve million dollars out of those those kinds of services is is not feasible for our residents. So it, it puts us in an extremely difficult position and. There was some um, discussion last night of, you know, we want to make sure that our provincial representatives, um, our MPPs for for the Hamilton area, are are aware of the challenges that we're facing. And uh, don't just brush it off as, well, you're the city, you know, it's up to you to find efficiencies. Because that's, uh, to be frank, that's not realistic. I I don't mean to throw more at you here, but I'm sure you guys are under the realization, too, that uh, it's not going to get better anytime soon. I mean, these are the challenges for your 2020 budget. But the premier's already said that, look, at some of these cuts he's going to postpone, so that, but they are going to come into place. He's going to phase even more cuts, he told us, in the coming years. So as, as bad as the pressure is going to be on council this year, it's probably going to be worse the year after and the year following that. And I think that's something that we, we have to prepare for. I mean, like I said at the beginning, going into our 2020 budget, we knew that this budget year in particular was going to be, um, it was going to be a challenge. But the provincial cuts on top of that just uh, throw fuel to the fire. Like they, they've really um, accelerated the amount of um, the amount of service cuts and, and jobs and investments that and everything that goes along with that. But it's not entirely the province's fault. I mean, uh, as the city ourselves, we you know we do have a responsibility to look at our own finances and make sure that we are investing and, and spending responsibly. Because at, at the end of the day, you know, everybody likes to say there's, there's only one taxpayer. So, you know, whether people are paying that to their provincial um, taxes or the municipal taxes, it's the same taxpayer. So, you know, we're very cognizant of our duty to make sure that our, our taxpayers' money is invested wisely. And uh, But 
having having to juggle all the provincial changes. Bill 108 is another one. Um, that's the uh, uh, the housing bill um, that changes some of our development charges. It changes what we you know where we can expand our urban boundary. We don't even know yet what the financial implications of that are, They're, and they have potential to be just as significant, if not more, than what we've already seen through cuts. So, um, yeah, the, it, the next uh, few years are going to be uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging. Well, and for a city, like most other cities in this province right now, that are looking for sustainable funding, uh, you know, there's a, a federal election coming up in just a couple of weeks, too. Uh, and so if there's a change in government, or even if they, this government gets reelected, you don't know what the budget ramifications are going to be to that, too. Uh, the challenges are immense. Uh, I assume public consultation is going to be part of the process over the next couple of months. Yeah, so as of uh, our, our meeting yesterday, we've we've given our t- our staff a task to look at which user fees, um, so this would be recreation fees, uh, other city fees that could be increased, what fees that we want to continue to subsidize. Um, so if, you know, uh, inner city youth or impoverished groups are using our facilities, we don't want to increase fees for them, but there might be other groups that can realistically can afford a, a small fee increase. Um, and then we've also tasked our, our uh, finance staff to look at our city departments and uh, see what they need to do in order to come in with um, um, a 2%, 1%, or 0% um, uh, increase for the next fiscal year. And again, to put that in perspective, if we ask our city departments to come in with a 2% increase for 2020, that's $18 million in reductions they have to find. At 0%, it's up to $35.5 million in reductions. And that's that's a huge amount of service cuts and investments and, and other, you know, jobs, to be honest, um, that they'll have to be looking at with, uh, with a fine-tooth comb. So it's, it's an immense task. It certainly is. So, well, more discussions, obviously, as uh, we start to put a face on some of these uh, cuts and where they're actually going to be realized. John Paul, as always, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Ward 8 Councillor uh, John Paul Danko. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, I want to talk about a report that's in the National Observer. It's actually from a leaked provincial document. Uh, On the day that Premier Doug Ford pulled Ontario out of the international clean energy trading market, in other words, the cap-and-trade program, uh, it spelled the end of about 227 emission-reducing projects across the province. And uh, somebody's actually itemized these things, and it's published in the National Observer today. A full list of the council projects assembled by a government source based on information obtained through their role and through multiple information requests was shared exclusively with the National Observer. Uh, and uh, it's a, it's an awful lot of money. It's an awful lot of uh, energy programs, green programs, uh, that some have already been started and funded, and the funding has been revoked for them. So there are, as we talked about in the last hour, there are implications not just to the provincial taxpayer but to municipal taxpayer. And guess what? We're the same taxpayer. Uh, Steve Applin's with us, publisher of Emission Track, uh, which monitors CO2, carbon dioxide emissions from energy use, and uh, always a f- reliable source and a great guy to talk to when we got talking about energy and things of this nature. How are you doing today, Steve? Great, Bill. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Not surprising, really, w- about the implications of this. Uh, the, we This was rumored to be around there the minute the government announced that they were going to kill the cap-and-trade program. Uh, we yep. knew that there were going to be some implications, but boy, this is a pretty significant number. Well, there's some, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good itemized list, I guess, uh, that's, that's some leak that the National Observer got. Uh, it's not uh, terribly uh, uh, surprising. It's just uh, like if you itemize a list, then it st- starts to look more and more egregious, especially when you look at the names of the programs. It's a lot of social housing, uh, a lot of uh, basically 
buzzwords that are in there that uh, that uh, it would make it look like that you're if you cut the program then you're against social housing, and it's uh, kind of like uh, energy conservation for babies. So if the program gets cut, then why does Doug Ford hate babies so much, et cetera, et cetera? It's that kind of it's in that sort of vein that if that if you that if you go through this itemized list and look at what all these expenditures would have been for it, it these are kind of not it's no surprise that uh, that somebody like Ford would be uh, ideologically opposed to public expenditures on on this kind of thing but isn't this the sort of thing that just about anybody who wants to be in government talks about doing I mean these are green initiatives and and the the, the entire world seems to be moving in that direction don't they well the entire world it, in a sort of a way, for, for the last 40 years, we've been fed a steady diet from the uh, soft path environmental movement uh, that stuff like energy conservation, basically 90% of the programs that are in that itemized list in the National Observer, that that sort of approach is a, is a valid environmental approach, and I'm contending that they're not. The very existence of government programs 40 years into this soft path approach to to serious environmental pro, uh, problems, the very existence of government programs that support that kind of thing might indicate uh, how how vapid they are to begin with. Uh, it's alleged that if you that uh, energy conservation, energy efficiency are ways uh, that we're going to dramatically reduce carbon. That's simply not so. If if that's true, uh, then I wouldn't need a government program to retrofit my house to help me pay for a, a home retrofit. Uh, I would just finance, finance that through the energy savings. The energy savings are simply not that big. I know this because I used to I used to market this for the federal government, and mm-hmm. the numbers are simply not there. If if the energy savings were decisive enough, then I'd be able to finance my home retrofit through the energy savings. Well, they're not big enough. That's why I need the government program. And if you need a government program, then then this is maybe not the approach to cutting carbon that its proponents claim that it is. So why are we doing it then? I, well, I think it's just uh, governments of a certain political stripe. Th- these these kinds of programs are, you know, a, a giant pat ourselves in the back um, opportunity, both for the government that brings them in, then the government gets to share the stage with Hollywood celebrities and former failed vice presidential presidential candidates, uh, and uh, and the and the people who the recipients of the funds get to, uh, um, you know green and say this that i'm green I'm, I'm i'm saving energy and helping save the planet again it's not decisive enough to warrant large public expenditures you know we go into director's law where the lower income classes and the upper income classes pay for middle income class uh, programs this is that in a nutshell and i think that uh, that it's that it's not it's not uh, unwarranted for a government to come in and question of the, you know, where these funds are going and, and whether they're as effective as their proponents claim. But from a, from a philosophical standpoint, and I know there's a huge difference, Steve, between the, the philosophical end of this and the pragmatic and financial end of this, but from a philosophical standpoint, don't we want to be greener? Don't we want to use uh, less uh, fuels, uh, fossil fuels? Don't we want to have more bike paths? I mean, that's all quality of life stuff, isn't it? Well, that's that's true. The 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 bike path is is an interesting uh, uh, part of this. Uh, the bulk of these things are you know are are building energy, uh, and building energy. Well, we're at forty five degrees north. I'm at forty five degrees north. You're at so a little bit south, uh, but we use uh, uh, lots of energy in the winter time to stay warm. Uh, that's never going to change, and to 
claim that we are going to conserve our way into significant savings on that front is is absolutely wrong. Uh, the way that we're going to the way that we're going to cut carbon from from that class of emissions, which is a very very big class in Ontario, it's thirty to forty million tons any given year. Uh, the way that we're going to do that is by simply shifting to cleaner forms of energy, and this is what the proponents of of these pr- programs. I mean, and let's not forget these that money going into these programs can represent a sunk cost. We're since we're not achieving uh, what they are claiming that we're achieving, we we still got a building energy problem in greenhouse gases. Forty years into this soft path thing, uh, the reason for that is because we simply cannot fail to use energy, and the the way to cut carbon from that kind of uh, class of emissions is to move to lower carbon or zero carbon forms of energy. That's the that's where the debate should be going, and not whether you know a retrofit is going to help because a retrofit is frankly not going to help. Well, but the problem I think we have here, and you and I have discussed this in the past, is is that we as a society here in, in North America. Uh, don't mind dipping our toe in the water of, of, of energy uh, renewals and things like that, but we don't want to take the big step. We don't want to jump right into this. Uh, some communities have. I know places like Scandinavia and other other jurisdictions have gone a lot further on than we do. Uh, we don't really want to do that that full dive right into there and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna tackle this thing. I, I mean, as as you've said before, I mean, the, the most significant thing I think the Ontario government's done in the last twenty five thirty years when it comes to, for instance, cleaner air was shutting down the coal plants. Uh, and, and that That's was right. great. Uh, and the other stuff, you're, you're absolutely right. The numbers show that it has been minuscule, but we can be doing more for it. We just don't seem to want our government to do that to us or for us. That's right. Well, the, and the cap and trade program is, is a perfect example of what we're talking about because it really does matter what you're going to use those revenues for. So the cap and trade program raises revenues and for what? Well, in this case, uh, it's for uh, programs and measures that the current government doesn't agree with the current government doesn't agree i don't know if they've articulated this uh as, as the way that i'm doing it i but uh no but you're, you're doing it much better than they have <laughs> but, but it, it, it could it could be that they're they're simply they simply disagree and and they and they and, and they uh, don't think that the game is worth the candle and that's a completely legitimate approach to this this is not what's in the in the public debate what it is is we have uh been like i said fed a steady diet of soft energy path propaganda since the first energy crisis in 1973. So 40, 40, 45 years, we've been told, uh, conserve energy and energy efficiency, and that's the way to do this. And it's simply not. It's just, there's simply no data that supports us. There's no place on Earth that supports that. Uh, what, what reduces CO2 from this sector is using cleaner energy. And that's where, the, that's where the meat of the debate, and that's the debate that is not happening. So what we've been going for 40 years with these uh, with this uh, kind of false dichotomy, you either do this kind of stuff that's in the that's uh, itemized in the National Observer, or you're not in favor of the environment, and that's a that's a that's a false dichotomy. That's not getting to the meat of what our problem is. Our problem is we need to we need quantum leap carbon reductions, and you certainly don't get them from uh, this this kind of stuff. Well, because I think a lot of us don't believe the theories, don't we? I mean. You know, as you mentioned, from where you live and where I live here in southern Ontario, uh, I'm going to have to be using fossil fuels to heat my home for the you know the rest of my life. I mean, that's not going to change. I I can't put panels up there and just say, okay, fine, cut off the fossil fuels. Uh, that's uh-huh. that's a reality we're going to have to face here. That's right. Well, it's it's we need we need uh, on any given cold day in Ontario, we need uh, we need you know each house uh, a normal sized house is going to need between fifteen and twenty kilowatts of heat 
uh, when the furnace is running. You don't get 15 or 20 kilowatts of heat from the solar panel. That's right. Right now, you get it from natural gas. So the And you could be getting it from electricity because that's the only other large-scale bulk energy source that can deliver power at that level to each individual home. So the debate ought to be, well, how do we electrify our system so that, we're, so that that 15 to 20 kilowatts of heat that we're using to keep our homes warm in the winter is as clean as possible? That's a legitimate debate, and that's not what's happening. The whole, you know, the former government's Green On program, that was a uh, program that uh, cemented natural gas in our, in our heating sector, so that's not helping. Like, we've got 30 to 40 million tons, primarily from natural gas, uh, every year uh, that we're dumping into our air, uh, and no home retrofit is going to touch that. So what we need is quantum shifts to clean energy uh, that will, you know, that will cut that in half and hopefully to zero by some point in the future. And that's the debate that we that we really should be having. So this giant program, cap and trade, it, you know, if, if you're di- diverting hard earned public money into this kind of stuff, that then it looks like just a lot of virtue signaling on the backs of taxpayers. But to be that sustainable, and as you mentioned, the alternative, let's talk about electricity as an alternative thing. It's, it's a, sure. a home heating fuel is going to be the big one. And we've also talked about electricity as, as the alternative for, for fueling our automobiles and our vehicles as well. That, that yep. seems to be a government mindset. The cost yep. is prohibitive, Steve. I mean, <laughs> the, co- the cost is prohibitive. You're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. The cost is prohibitive if you go down the path. Uh, that, that the previous government wanted us to go down to and that the environmental movement wants us to go down. If you listen to the environmental movement, it's all wind and solar, and they're talking about wind and solar taking over not just electricity, but home heating and, as you said, uh, vehicles as well. That's a massive amount of electricity. Like We, that's, we use 500 billion kilowatt hours a year of energy, uh, about 140 of, uh, a million, billion of which is electricity. The, uh, the rest is natural gas for heating, and gasoline for and diesel for cars. We're supposed to shift all of that onto uh, uh, expensive intermittent sources like wind and solar. That that's also not a. You're right. That's prohibitively expensive. But that's not the way that we have to go. We could we could certainly go the nuclear way, which is what I'm yeah. proposing, and we've proven that that is a, a inexpensive way to provide bulk energy to an advanced society like Ontario. We simply need to expand our fleet. Why that we were moving in that direction about twenty five years ago? Why do we stop? Yep. Well, further because of the soft energy path. If you recall, back in the nineteen nineties, we had Darlington B on the books. We were supposed to build a B yep, station at right. the Darlington site. That got canned by the Ontario by Ontario Hydro under the NDP, uh, listening to soft path advocates who said, "Oh no, we can conserve." Well, here we are, forty or, or twenty five years later. We're not conserving. We could have used the output from Darlington B, and we would have the cleanest electricity system in the world, and we'd be able to start attacking the heating sector with electricity. And uh, unfortunately, now we're not. So yes, but uh, it, it tracks back to history, and it tracks back to exactly this ideology that I am critiquing, uh, which is the soft path and, and its 40-year record of absolute non-achievement when it comes to cutting carbon. I, I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Is, is it too late to go back? No, it's not too late to to go back. Uh, we, we there's you know there's uh, we've changed the structure of our electricity market and our electricity system, and there have to be some profound uh, tr- changes in that in order to facilitate to facilitate what I advocate, which is a expansion of nuclear and uh, expansion of electricity into currently fossil powered uh, processes. 
but it's not too late to go back. It's, it's, it's uh, certainly we've got the technology that, that that we know how to run it, and, we, and it's proven. So we certainly could uh, we certainly could do it. It just takes uh, this is where political will would come in, and and it takes a shift in public attitudes. Well, and, and uh, the fear factor was, a, 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 I'm sure, a factor in that as well. You're right, a part of it was ideology with an NDP government here in Ontario, but there was yep. the Chernobyl incident and, and, and yep. a number of things, and we thought, oh my God, it's not reliable, it's not safe. Uh, I, I yep. think we've, we've pretty much overcome that fear, haven't we not? Uh, well, I would hope so. I mean, in our, in our neck of the woods, we've had, uh, we've had nuclear as the main source of electricity for the past 40 years, actually, ironically, for the entire time of the soft energy path. Uh, movement's existence. Uh, we've been powering our province mostly with nuclear, can-do nuclear uh, since then, and boy, it's, it's, it's uh, served us very well. It's our most reliable and biggest source at any given time in the last 40 years, and uh, they just uh, crank up power. They're cranking up power right now. Well, we'll see uh, what the government's going to come up with next. Uh, we're looking for Plan B here. Uh, Steve, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks. Take care. Steve Applin, of course, from Emission Track. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.